This audio is from King's Cross Church in Independence, Missouri. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit kingscrosskc.com. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. If you're using the black Bible in the pew in front of you, it's on page 892. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross. And um, I don't know if this stood out to you, but this question in the text is everything today. Um, when, when, the, when the Jews were looking for him at the festival of booths, they asked the question, where is he? Where is he? There was an expectation that Jesus would be there, that he would be in, uh, in, in the town, that he would be celebrating with everybody, that he would be exactly where they thought he would be. And why that's so important to us today is, man, that is the thing that we do all the time when we want something, like especially Jesus. When we want Jesus to be a certain way, a certain time, perform in a certain like manner, like we want it our way, when we want it, how we want it, and all of that. And sometimes in our frustration, we shake our fist at the sky and we say, where are you? Where are you? It, like, it even makes me feel like, I don't know if you guys, maybe this is just me, I have this dream uh, often. It's a reoccurring dream. I have a lot of reoccurring dreams. I don't know if you're a counselor, maybe you can talk to me about that. But the this one in particular, um, like I can fly. I'm on my family's farm and I'm out in this field and I can fly and it's awesome. If you've had flying dreams, you know what I'm talking about. And like, then I go to show somebody and it's like, I can fly, but it's like, I can 
Like, I can't fly. You know what I mean? I can't do it anymore. And it's so frustrating. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I was like flying earlier. And now I'm just like kind of hovering and they're like, okay, cool. And it's so frustrating. And I'm, I'm so upset at the expectation in this dream. But like, I don't know why this text made me think about it. I think it's just like the frustration of wanting to show people something that you love or demonstrate and like not being able to do it. Um, it if you've ever seen something that you really want and you're, I don't know, I have this like, when I see something I want, I'm a terrible person to buy Christmas gifts for because when I see something, I'm just like, all right, I'm going to buy it. And then come Christmas time, they're like, what do you want? And I was like, I have everything I need. And you can just like, whatever, here's some things that I might get or things. It's just really hard because like when I see something, I have this like burning desire. I want to have it right now, right then. Like, I don't want to wait till my birthday. I don't want to wait till Christmas. It's the way that I am. It's broken part of me. I get it. But like we, we're, this is built into us as people that when we want something, we want it now. We want it exactly how I want it. We want it in the time that I want it. Like we're very entitled people. People at times, um, and specifically when it comes to prayer, we like come to the Lord with this giant expectation of God, I want you to do this for me, but I want you to do it in this way, and I want you to do it in this time period as fast as possible. As fast as possible. And God doesn't always act that way, He doesn't always just like do what we want. And so this text draws us back into the story and the narrative of John, where we're met once again with a bunch of people who are disappointed that Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do. He's not doing what they want him to do. And so we're going to learn a lot in this text about God's timing this morning, about how God thinks about time and plans and those type of things. And then secondly, I want us to uh, ask a, a second question. And this question, the, this question is huge for us because it is, has implications for the way that we act as disciples of God, is what is Jesus doing when he's not doing what we expect him to be doing? What's he doing? And if we look and see what he's doing as his disciples, we should be like, oh, that's what I should be doing. I shouldn't be so worried about this like certain plan that I have about how things should go. I should be looking at what Jesus is doing and living in that way. So a couple questions to ponder as we read this text, and these are crucial to us, is whether or not you are willing to submit to God's timing, God's, uh, God's purposes, the God's methods for doing things. Are you willing, as a follower of Christ, to submit to God's time? Are you willing to do that? And maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then the first thing you ask him for that you don't get, you throw a giant fit over it. And you're like, I don't throw fits. It's like, yes, we do. We do it all the time as Christians. We throw fits when God doesn't meet our request. So are you willing to submit to God's timing this morning? And in that waiting, if God should cause you to wait, what is the activity of that space? What are we to do as followers of Christ? What is the mission in that space of waiting? Jesus answers both of those questions for us this morning as we find out more about him from the question, where is he? Where is he? Let's pray and then jump in. Father, thank you so much for your word. I am so encouraged, Lord, that you give us narrative, that we get to see like how you act in just mundane conversations with your family as we come out of the holiday season where we've had insane amounts of conversations with family, whether it be good, whether it be hard, whether there be tensions like you had those things. You actually understand family tension and family fallout. You get that. And so, God, you can sit with us. You can empathize with us. You can um, understand 
understand us. And God, you ultimately have a plan for us. And so, Lord, open our eyes. Let us see the answer to those questions this morning. Let us be changed by the answers to those questions. Let us be faithful disciples of you and let the word of God transform our hearts. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, like always, we need to do a little bit of historical background because you're just not going to get what you could get out of this story without doing it. You just won't. Uh, Trevor and I were texting this week. This is, this is why this is important. We were texting this week, and we've been reading this uh, fantasy fiction series. It's super nerdy. If you're into that, like, we'll recommend it. It's amazing. It's incredible, in fact. And um, right now, the author has, like, completed these giant, like, trilogies, and now he's doing some, like, one-off stories in the same world. And he even says at the very beginning, like, go, you can read these books. You don't have, need to have read anything else. You can enjoy these one-off books and not have read anything else. And it's like, that is true. But because we've read everything else, we read these and there's like a mention of a very just common name, but we're both like, oh, we know who that is. That's a character from the first book. And he's actually like a God walking around on the earth and he's really powerful and all this stuff, but he's just like this mundane character. He looks like a butler right here, but nobody else knows that because they didn't read the... The point is, my excitement in that space is to demonstrate to you that historical work in the Bible is so important that we can get so much more out of the story, out of what Jesus is doing and what John is trying to say if we know those fun details. And so just another apologetic for why we do background work here. It matters. It is life-changing. It gives you more beauty and insight into the passage, and ultimately it gives God a ton of glory when we do that, when we, when we deep, div, dive deep into his word. And and so first off, you need to know a little bit about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles that they're having here in the city. Uh, the Hebrew name is Sakat. This, is a, uh, this celebration is something that the Jews did at the last of uh, the fall. It was the last fall festival. It was held at the end of their agricultural year. And when the grapes and the olives were being harvested in Israel, and this was a time to thank God for all of the provision from the year, from the good rainy season, which would last from October through March. Primarily, though, this celebration dates all the way back to the wilderness journey when, uh, from Egypt to Canaan, when God made the people, if you read Leviticus in chapter 23, he made them build little booths, give up the comforts of whatever they were living in in wilderness. I, I can't imagine that was super comfortable, but he's like, no, we got to get more on comfortable. Go live in this booth. And, and, he, and the purpose was to remember how God was providing for them in the middle of their trouble, in the middle of their striving, in the middle of the wilderness journey. And so he wanted them to remember that by feasting together while living in these huts, which, man, I don't much love the idea of just like tent sleeping. It's fine. Like I, I'll tent sleep. But I do think if, if God was like, hey, King's Cross, everybody go to like this farm together. We're all going to camp for a week and just feast for an entire week, just celebrating all God has provided for you. That sounds like a blast to me. I would, I would sacrifice sleeping on the ground to eat great food with you guys and just celebrate for an entire week of God's provision. And that's what they did. They did that every year. They still do that. Um, they are celebrating this feast to celebrate God's provision. Uh, this is uh, one commentator mentions this. He says at the each feast of booze, the Israelites gave up the comforts of their homes in order to commemorate God's salvation. This is a reminder for them that in order to be redeemed, the people of the Lord must surrender certain things. We must give up self-reliance and selfishness. We must turn from our idols and comforts of our sin. Unless we repent, turning from such things and turning to the Redeemer, we will not be saved. 
And, and so we want to get the full context of that going in. It's just a brief mention of this festival, God's provision. It's very important for the full picture of this text. Second thing you need to notice, Jesus is having a conversation with his brothers here. And you're like, oh, cool, his brother James, you know, one of the founders of the church. James is not a fan of Jesus at this point. You talk about family drama. His family do not believe him. They think he is a massive joke. They have already like, oh, man, Jesus is going crazy. We got to go get this dude and bring him home. It's not good. Like the, the conversation that they're having here isn't one of like deep familial love of, oh, our, our Jesus, our brother, the Messiah. No, like they do not believe he is who he says he is at all. And so they're having this conversation, not out of a belief in his ministry, but out of, hey, Jesus, if you're this Messiah, go do what you're supposed to do. You know, do what we think you should do, Jesus, big Messiah. It's almost a taunting that they come at him with in this passage. It's important to know that. The third thing that we need to know about this passage is, and, and I'll mention this briefly later, but you notice that Jesus says he's not going to go into the city, and then he goes into the city. And it's like, Jesus isn't lying. There's contextual things about how they go into the city that really matter. There is a massive pilgrimage back to the city in which everyone's traveling together. And, and what they want Jesus to do is to lead this parade back into the city. And all Jesus is saying, he's like, I'm not going to do that that way. And so when he goes to the city later, he's not like lying to his brothers, uh, even though many of us would empathize and be like, man, it's cool. I'll give Jesus a pass on that one. Just like lie to your family just one time to get away from him. But he's not lying to his brothers. He's just like, I'm not going to go about the way you think I need to do things. It's not time yet. And so something else that's helpful in this passage, uh, and we'll get more into the timing of that later. So let's read and jump in. It says in verse one, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. Now the feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if, he's, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. A few things to note here about Jesus's ministry. Jesus's ministry was not about gathering the biggest crowd. Like it wasn't about this flashy message that like drew a ton of people in. In fact, Paul even talks about this in Corinthians, but what Jesus is doing, and we've seen this already in John, is he's dividing the people that are following him out the entire time. He's sifting them from people who actually believe, that actually want to follow him, that are there for his messianic work, and those that just want the show. Those that just want to like see him do cool stuff and see him heal people and see him like mess with the Pharisees. They love that kind of stuff. And Jesus isn't about like trying to make all of those people happy. He's constantly trying to sift those that are authentic out from those that are just there for the show the entire time. His ministry is not about like doing some big show to gain a bunch of people. It's what Paul talks about in Corinthians when he says his message, the gospel message is like, um, it's like life to those who are being saved and death to those who aren't. 
The gospel message is a message for those of us who are being saved. It is life to us. We get that. It's like a drink of fresh water. But to those who are not being saved, it feels like condemnation. It feels the weight of that, right? He's, he's sifting in the way he does things. Second thing, Jesus isn't making a statement in this passage about being popular. It, it almost reads as if he's like some emo guy, like, everybody hates me, okay? Like, it's okay, like, you guys can do whatever you want, but I'm like hated, okay? It, it has nothing to do with that. I like was laughing when I was reading this. Just the plain reading of the text almost feels that way, and that's just like our, con our context pouring into that. But he's not being weird or emo, but he, he is saying that the reason people hate me is because I'm actually doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm actually doing my light of the world job, and the light of the world job is to look into the darkness and expose it. And people hate me for that. People hate me for that. And there's two responses for when, when, when the light of the world shines light into the darkness, you either are hit with that light and you're like, you know what, God, I am super broken. I am super sinful. I have messed up. I am condemned. I deserve death. All of that. Like it hits you and you feel that and you're like, you recognize it immediately. It's, it's what the Holy Spirit softens your heart, right? And you repent. There's a stance of repentance. And then the other side of that is what we're seeing from the Pharisees in the narrative what we see from the brothers even in this passage, what many of us have maybe even experienced is when the light of the gospel shines in on us, we like to throw up our guards and we like to get defensive and we like to say, yeah, 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 but that's not how I am. I'm not that bad. Like, God, like, give me a break, right? Like, don't give me that. We like to rationalize our sin. We like to get off easy. And Jesus is saying, my message will sift that out. And the people that don't like it, they will hate me. And we know that they hate him because they're already trying to kill him. It said that in the second verse. People are seeking to kill him. Why? Because he's exposing the darkness. He's exposing the darkness. One pastor says, if Jesus were some run-of-the-mill, glory-seeking, fame-craving, false prophet, he could have gone up to Jerusalem with the big crowd, done the mighty works, gathered bigger crowds, and basked in their adoration. But Jesus is the light of the world. And when light enters into darkness, everything is exposed for what it really is. This is what Jesus' family did not understand, that the religious leaders were plotting to kill him because he broke their religious monopoly over the world. Everyone else looked at the religious, uh, Jewish religious leaders and they saw their good deeds and they said, all these guys pray in public, they're amazing, they're, they're you know, th to them at that time, they were like the freedom fighters that saved us, like we love these guys, right? And Jesus didn't, he wasn't fooled by that. Everyone else looked at the Jewish religious leaders and saw that, but Jesus saw their pride, he saw their self-righteousness and he exposed their sin. But the beauty about Jesus is that he didn't just come to expose sin, he also came to bring the cure. He also came to bring the cure. Jesus knew in that conversation with his brothers that his ultimate journey was death, that he was heading towards death. He was heading towards the cross. And his reluctance to go into that city wasn't because he was afraid of that. It wasn't because he's like, man, this is going to be bad. It's not time for me to go into the city yet. It's not because he was afraid. It's because he was on God's timing and not man's timing. Jesus knew his death was coming, and he knew that before he gave the world the cure, he would have to expose the sickness. He would have to shine more light into the sickness to, to let everyone know how sick we really were, how sick these Pharisees really were, how sick these people following him for entertainment really were. Before he offered the cure, he had to show them that they were ill. 
And so that's what he did. In verse 10 it says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's a very weird passage. I... When I first read this text, I was like, how in the world do you preach this? He has a weird conversation with his brothers. He kind of goes the opposite of what they say. And then basically the gossip of Jesus on the street is like, where is this dude? He's a pretty good guy. And uh, I think he's leading people astray. And that's it. That's all we get, right? But on closer examination, if you look at the context like we have, if you look at how Jesus responds specifically to his brothers and then his actions about what he does, man, there is some gold here. And so I want us to look at some takeaways. First of all, I was reminded of this, even as we sang this song this morning, that, that he will not fail. He won't fail. God will not fail. God will not fail. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that, though, this morning? That God will not fail. Because in this text, we see a bunch of people wanting Jesus to do exactly what they think he should do. Oh, show yourself to the crowd, Jesus, his brothers want. And then at the end, people are really confused of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah because he's not doing like he's not taking down Rome. Like, is he leading people astray? He's talking back to the Pharisees. Would a, would a Messiah do that? Everyone's really confused because their expectations of Jesus were being missed. And so they were frustrated with him. Do you think they believed that God had failed them? Probably. We sing the song, he won't fail, but do you believe it? And, the, and the, one of the biggest takeaways we can pull from this passage is that God's timing, his calendar, and his methods are incomprehensibly perfect. Incomprehensibly perfect. Here's what I mean by that. The prayers that you pray today, the prayers that you cry and you weep about, the prayers that you long for, they may not get answered until you are six feet underground. We, we don't know. We don't know. There are prayers that I have prayed and I feel like, man, God, it's never going to answer this. He's rejected me. He's forgotten about me. He doesn't give a rip about this prayer. But the reality of it is like, God's like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't even understand how I'm piecing this together. It's going to be much better than you could even imagine. You might have to wait. You may not see it. Jeremiah was doing ministry for years. He saw a couple converts. You think he felt like a failure? Absolutely. But did God fail? No, we're in this room today because of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah didn't get to see it. You may not get to see it. The point of this passage, one of the biggest things you could take away is that God's timing, his methods, his, his calendar, it's incomprehensibly perfect to us. And while we may not understand it, God is working for our good and his glory. And our job as believers is to trust him, to trust him. So I'm not saying this. I'm not saying like, don't pray then because God's got it. I'm saying beg God. Yeah. Beg him. Don't quit praying. Kayla and I were talking about Jonah this week. It's a wild story. Jonah is just a weird book, right? It's a weird book. And, and Jonah's praying all this stuff, and God is like, okay, Jonah, like, 
I'll do, I'm going to destroy the people of Nineveh. And, and Jonah's like, yeah. And then Jonah like goes and preaches. And then God's like, oh, they got saved. Never mind. Like, we're not doing that anymore. And, and like the, the attitude of Jonah is so much like us when, when God actually does answer prayer, he like throws a fit and he's like, no, God, I want to see them condemned. Like, it's just the fitful way that we act as Christians sometimes in regards to our prayer life with Christ. When he doesn't do things the way we expect, we throw these little Christian fits. Instead of trusting in him, Jesus' brothers didn't trust in him. He's like, listen, I am on God's timing. And he actually is pretty offensive to them. He's pretty offensive to his brothers because he's, he says, I'm on God's time. You guys can do whatever you want, but I'm on God's timing. If you look at the exact words, it's very weird. He says, uh, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Your time is always here. Here's what he's saying to his brothers. The people that are here just for entertainment that are actually not in the family, that's you. You're, you're not on God's time because you're not in God's, like you're not living in God's plan right now. Like you are outside the family of faith. And he even addresses that when they try to come get him earlier. They're like, hey, Jesus, come home. You're being crazy. He's like, you're not my family. These people are my family. These people are my family. The people that are following me, the people that are here, that are, that are legitimately here. And so he throws shade at him and he's like, listen, you guys can do whatever you want because you're not on God's clock, but I'm a part of God's plan. I am doing exactly what God wants me to when he wants me to do it. And you don't trust him. And then all the people that were in the city, that were just like, who is this Jesus guy? Like there was a lack of trust, a lack of rest in God's timing. And, and listen, I can empathize. Like they've been waiting hundreds of years for this. Hundreds of years, hundreds of years for this promise. And these people have likely forgotten most of what they've been taught. They've likely forgotten what it's like to experience uh, the presence of God. Like we don't know what that gap feels like because we have the Holy Spirit with us every second of our lives. But these people have been not hearing from God for hundreds of years. And now Jesus comes up and, and again, he's not the first messianic claim on the scene, but he's doing things that nobody else has been doing, right? And so they're like, man, do we trust this guy? There's just a lack of trust. There's a lack of trust. And Jesus wants to point that out. And he's trying to tell us right now this morning that his time his calendar and his methods are perfect. Just trust him. Keep praying, keep begging and know, like know that like the prayers that you pray today are not, they're not like just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down at you. He hears them. He, he often will answer. It just may, may not be when you think it will. And maybe it will. Maybe it will. Maybe he'll answer it today, right? That would be awesome, right? The prayers that we pray, Kayla and I have, have certain prayers that like we've even talked about as a family. Like it feels like, should we change praying for that? Like it seems like it's not happening. Should we like shift to something else? It's like, no, keep begging God for those things. His calendar is perfect. Trust him. Trust him. The second thing we should look at in this story is a model of discipleship that we must follow in that gap while we wait for our prayers to be answered. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I'm on God's timing. I'm going to do what God has me do in his time. And while I'm doing that, like, notice how people want to kill me. It's because I expose darkness. It's because I expose darkness. That's why people want to kill me. So as a follower of Christ, one of the things that we must do, we must do this. 
is expose darkness, expose sin in the world. We must point out things that, that are not right and say, this is not the way it should be. This is broken. This is evil. It is our job as Christians to do that. But this is so much, and this is one of the most important parts of this passage, is we don't just leave it with exposing darkness. But when people experience us exposing darkness, they also need to experiencing us showing them the cure. Showing them the cure. The Pharisees were masters at exposing darkness. They loved to like walk in a room and point out everybody's faults. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. People were like, you're right, we did. And they were left hopeless and sad and broken and all of these things. They were masters at that. And that is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, people hate me because I expose darkness. But what I'm doing that the Pharisees aren't doing is I am then offering a cure for that darkness. You see the, when he, uh, the woman who was caught in adultery, you know, there's people that wanted to stone her. Everybody's like, stone her. And you know what? The law says that was right. And Jesus goes into that scene and he goes, hey, let's go ahead and stone her. If any of you is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Do it. Do it. Throw the first stone. And what happens? They leave. <laughs> they leave. The Pharisees were great at exposing darkness. They didn't want to offer people the cure. They didn't want to. <laughs> And Jesus did. He offered them the cure. Matt Carter says, we distort the gospel when we expose sin without offering the hope of forgiveness. But when we expose sin as sin and then extend the promise of healing in Jesus, we actually clarify the gospel. Churches absolutely need to take sin seriously. Christians need to love one another enough to be willing to say, hold on, you're going down a bad path. That is the way of foolishness that leads to death. But we must say it in love and always for the purpose of healing and happiness. Jesus exposed sin and then he died to defeat it. We expose sin, and then we tell people they can actually have victory over it through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers them. The people in the city were asking, where is Jesus? It was not his time to come. But when he did come, when he did come to that city, he crushed sin once and for all through his death. So the question that we remind ourselves of as we entered into this passage, are you willing this morning to submit to God's timing? Are you willing to lay down your expectations of how God should serve you, how God should heal things for you or fix things for you or put things together that are broken for you? If God doesn't do it this way, then he must not be good. Are you willing this morning to lay that down at his feet and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand and I, I may be angry and I may be sad because that is all real and that is good and okay. You can be frustrated and angry and sad. That should increase your prayer. That should increase your longing. That should increase your need for the gospel. All of those things. And we say, God, I trust you with it. You've got it. You won't fail. We sing that song. Don't, don't be a liar. Believe it. He will not fail. Believe it. Trust in him. And then maybe even ask yourself the deeper question this morning is the reason that you actually don't trust God's plan, that you're off of God's calendar and timing and all of that is, is similar to Jesus's brothers, that maybe you are not in the family of God. You're not a follower this morning. The reason you don't trust God is because you've never believed in him. You're here for the show. 
you're here for friends or, or whatever. Like maybe you're here and you don't even believe this morning. My prayer for you was actually in that space that God would do exactly what he's doing here, that Jesus would show up, that the Holy Spirit would reveal your brokenness, reveal the darkness in you, reveal like he did for many of us, that we are sinners, like we've messed up. We are not perfect people. Church isn't full of perfect people. It's full of broken people who have been given the cure have been given the cure, the good news of the gospel. And so my prayer is that you would experience that Holy Spirit healing power of the gospel this morning, the love of God that would pour out on you in the midst of your brokenness as you lay there hurting from your sin, realizing that you've, you've, you've been a sinner and that God would meet you in that space and say, yes, and I have, I have water for you. I have, I have bread of life for you. The fact that you are living in darkness would be revealed to you and that God would heal you in that space. And if you are a believer this morning, it's still hard for us sometimes to trust in God's plan. And if we can trust in God's plan, in that space of waiting, our job as believers is to expose darkness and to offer the cure to people. So go back into your circles of influence and point out sin. Don't be afraid to do it. Like God is with you. Point out sin and offer the cure. It's easy to just share the gospel, but people don't even know they need the gospel unless they realize first that how broken they are. If we just go around saying everybody goes to heaven like, because Jesus loves them, that's wrong. That's heresy. We must first say sin exists in this world and we are broken people. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But guys, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There is a cure for those who long. There's a cure for those who are needing it. The Feast of Booths connection is fascinating here, that in the midst of the celebration of God's provision, they would often end the, uh, they incorporated later in the ceremony, um, a, water, a water ceremony for the, all the times that God provided water for them in the desert. And it's just fascinating to me that as they celebrate this, this remembering of God providing for them, the greatest provision they could ever experience was in their midst, and they were just completely missing it. The festival, of, the festival of Booths is an ironic placement in this story, that they were celebrating God's provision for them while completely ignoring the greatest provision he's ever given them. He was in their midst, right there. The Messiah was right there. All of the things that they've longed for their entire lives were right there. And so my prayer for you this morning, as we Sunday after Sunday celebrate God's provision for us, singing songs like he won't fail, don't miss it. Don't miss the Savior's provision for you. Trust in his provision. Trust in his timing. Trust that his calendar is not, like you're not falling off of it. He's not gonna, he's not gonna like ghost you. He won't do it. He will not do it. He will not fail you. And my prayer for you is on, on the other side of glory when you're with him. You'll be able to see all the prayers that you thought were unanswered. You'll be able to see, look at this beautiful mosaic picture of the, of the life that you lived and how I was glorified through it. See how good it was for you? That's my prayer for you this morning, that you would experience that one day in glory. That we all would. That it would call, cause us to fall on our knees in worship. But until that day... Let's go about Christians exposing sin and offering the world the cure that it needs. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your provision that you gave us, your only son. 
And that son lived a perfect life and he died on a cross. And three days later, he was resurrected. God, that is the greatest news any of us in this room could hear this morning. It is the cure for our broken hearts. And so God, if there's people in this room that are hurting and that need you, I pray that you would meet them right now. That you would would sit with them in their pain. That you would expose their sin, yes, but then you would offer them lovingly as you do the cure. The good news of the gospel, the healing power of your salvation. God, we need you. In the moments when we lack trust in you, help us trust you. When one of us is down, when one of us is lacking belief, let the body of Christ surround them and believe for them. Draw us closer together with one another in community as we seek to trust you, Lord. God, when we ask the question, where are you? Be faithful to us. Remind us that you will not fail, that your plans will succeed, that everything you aim to do on this earth, you will accomplish as perfectly as you could imagine. Remind us of those truths. Comfort us in the longing. Be with us in our brokenness. And God, for some of us, Lord, maybe even just save us this morning. Save us. We love you, Lord, and it's your name we pray. Amen.